the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. <clears throat> Such is the romance of the sea, its appeal, especially to the young, that small boys still dream of running off to join the Navy. And so did this one particular boy. His older brother Lawrence had been a Navy man himself, had many exciting recollections of his service. Occasionally, Brothers Navy's comrades were dinner guests, and oh, the stories that they told. Reliving their adventures through countless all but sleepless nights, the small boy grew impatiently longing to sail the seas. Now, of suitable age to enlist in the armed forces, he discussed the matter with his big brother, naturally received only encouragement. Perhaps with brother's help, the boy might enlist into officer training, might go into the Navy as a midshipman aboard a real Navy war vessel. It was a thrilling prospect. All that remained was to convince mother. The proposal was greeted with a heavy sigh. Mother had bravely accepted all the challenges in her life. The loss of her husband only five years before. The difficulty of rearing more than half a dozen young ones all by herself. And yet, here was another challenge to give up the teenager she still perceived as her baby. Mother, brave once more, gave her consent. The boy might enlist in the Navy if he wished. He did. Surely, this was the happiest time of the young man's life, a joyous drama full of glitter and grandeur and great expectations. The boy is now standing before his mother in dashing midshipman's uniform. He's bidding her farewell. His belongings are already aboard ship. The vessel is ready to set sail. Goodbye, he tells his mother. He will miss her. And that's when it happened. In an unexpected and uncharacteristic outpouring of emotion, mother began to sob. This woman who had already endured so much heartache now refused to endure any more. Her son must not board that ship. He must not go into the Navy. He must stay and be strong for the rest of the family, especially for her. Big brother Lawrence was there trying to persuade mother of the Navy's virtues. The teenager in midshipman's uniform was silent for a long while. And then he spoke. He did want a Navy career for himself. But not if it meant bearing the memory of his mother's grief. Much as it disappointed him, he would return his uniform would order his belongings ashore. Of all the young men who might have left home in search of adventure and did not, of this world's many almost midshipmen, the boy you have met was just one more. Yet, how might any other decision on his behalf have affected the American War for Independence? We owe a mother's 11th hour anxiety 
for preventing one young man from ascending through the ranks of the Navy, the British Navy. A boy of 15, tall, handsomely clad, bags packed and on board, prepared to embark on quite a different adventure for which you and I remember him. A boy of 15 whose love and respect for his mother changed not only his course in life, but the course of an entire nation. His name, George Washington. Here is just one example of the powerful influence and impact that a mother can have on the life of her child. Sometimes you've heard it said that behind every great man is a great woman, namely his mother. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, men are what their mothers made them. A prime example in the Bible is the mother of a young man named Timothy. His mother was a pious Jewish woman. She regarded it as her duty to pass on her faith and train her son in the careful knowledge of the Word of God. The historian Josephus writing said, Above all, we pride ourselves in the education and training of our children. If we read in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, this is what Paul writes to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Paul writes, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We see here that Timothy learned the Scriptures, not necessarily from the New Testament because it hadn't been written yet, but he learned the story of God's faithfulness to the Israelites at the feet of his mother and also his grandmother. If we flip over to the first chapter in Paul's letter to Timothy and read verse 5, Paul also writes to Timothy, he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first... lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I am persuaded now lives in you also. I am the person that I am today because of the faith that my grandmothers passed on to both of my parents who then passed it on to me. My father's mother, Martha, for the longest time, was committed to serving children at her church in Mineral Wells until she could no longer do it for health reasons. And she passed on her faith to her son, Sam. I remember dad praying with me and giving sound advice when I was an adolescent during very formative years. I'm thankful for my grandmother Kay, who passed on her faith to 
my mother Lori, whom I recall mom reading Hurlbut's stories of the Bible to myself and my two younger brothers when we were children. And I'm just very grateful for the faith that was instilled in my parents by their parents, who now I believe is instilled in myself. But I just want to remind you that when you tell your children the story of God's love, don't just emphasize the New Testament, but also read from the Old Testament. That's what Timothy grew up on. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. So tell your children the story of God's faithful love. Tell them about Moses and Joshua and Ruth and David and Esther. It was good for Timothy and it will be good for your children as well. Perhaps the country western singer Randy Travis sums it up well with his song Three Wooden Crosses. If you're familiar with that song, I'll quote it. It says, that's the story that our preacher told last Sunday as he held that blood-stained Bible up for all of us to see. He said, bless the farmer and the teacher and the preacher who gave this Bible to my mama, who read it to me. There are three wooden crosses on the right side of the highway. Why there's not four of them, now I guess we know. It's not what you take when you leave this world behind you. It's what you leave behind you when you go. Now if we take a look in the Old Testament at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. These are the instructions that God gives to Moses and tells him to relay to the Israelites so that they might remember God's faithfulness and pass them on to further generations. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. When you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The word impress means to fix deeply on the mind and the memory. And that is what parents are challenged and tasked to do. To live your life and interact with your children in such a way that you fix on their memory the story of God's love and his faithfulness. And notice Moses' specific and how God wants us to share his word to our children. It's not necessarily relegated to after-dinner devotions or before-meal prayers. While all of those are perfectly fine and even encouraged, there's something more than that. The word of God is something that needs to be intentionally talked about throughout the day. Be intentional. 
talking with your children about the Bible. Study it with your kids. Pray at random times of the day with your children, not just necessarily at mealtime or before they go to bed. Something that I learned at Camp Deer Run that I thought was very beneficial was often times we would just grab our campers together. We might be in the middle of playing a game or wandering through the, the beautiful uh, pine curtain of East Texas and we would just stop and we would have a one-minute prayer. We weren't in the middle of a Bible study or devotion. It was just an opportunity to bring God into every situation that a child encounters. As a charge to parents, I would encourage you to show your children that you are real. You don't have all the answers. We all make mistakes. By doing that, you will show God's grace not only towards you, but also towards your children. The author Gary Chapman, whom some of you may be familiar with, wrote a book several years ago called The Five Love Languages. The five love languages are words of affirmation, physical touch, gift-giving, acts of service, and quality time. Most people have a dominant love language. I'm sure that you could look on the internet and take uh, Mr. Chapman's quiz and find out what your love language is if you wanted to. But most people have a dominant love language. One of the five such that when someone demonstrates this love language towards you, you feel loved, you feel cared about. On some circumstances, you might have more than one love language, more than one way that someone can show you their feelings for you. Furthermore, you are most likely to supply others with the love language that you need because it's how you feel loved. For example, if words of affirmation is your love language, then you will shower encouragement on others because that's what you think that they need because that is something that you need and that is how you feel loved. But if the person that you love has the love language of gift giving, while your words might feel appreciated, they're not as powerful as showing your love by bestowing generous gifts upon that person. So when you wish to show your love to someone, you have to understand how they perceive love. Many children spell love T-I-M-E. T-I-M-E is the best way that you can show your child, or any child for that matter, that you care for him. You see, time is a concrete, measurable expression of love. When I give a child the gift of time, I am saying to them, I value you. You are important to me. The key to having a strong marriage, to communicating values to our children, is time. I love my wife more today than I did yesterday. And I will love her more tomorrow than I do today. Why is that? Because of time. Time has a special way to 
communicate love that you just can't necessarily do in a moment. So if we want our children to know and to understand and to adopt our core faith that Jesus Christ loves them and that he died not only for our sins and their sins, but for the sins of the entire world, the only way that we can do that is we must spend time with our children. What you parents, I'll address the parents for a brief period of time. Parents, what you are doing now matters more than what it feels like it does. Most kids don't know that what you are doing this week is going to be a formative part of their history. Why is that? Because they are children. They only see the here and the now. However, on a more parallel level, or an analogous level, Matt sometimes only sees the here and now. In some instances, he too is only a child. But you as their parent, you are an adult. You see yesterday and today and tomorrow. By being active week after week in their lives, you are making history in the life of a child. And the same analogy is evident. God is an adult. God knows yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Even though Matt the child sometimes does not. In the sense, parents... You are planting seeds for future times when your child will truly need you. All the times you spend fishing with your child or painting or throwing the football or reading or camping. You are laying the foundation that you love your child because you are spending time with them. You see, to your child, you just built a sandcastle. Or just took them to piano or to swimming lessons. You just went for a bike ride. Or took them to see a movie. Or out for pizza. Or in some unusual bizarre cases, you just practiced your math facts. And memorized all 45 presidents. But you know that you are doing something more than just building a sandcastle. You're doing something more than just memorizing the presidents of the United States. Perhaps Trace Adkins, another country and western singer, sums it up well with his song, Just Fishing. Trace says, he's talking about his daughter, and she thinks we're just fishing on the riverside, throwing back what we couldn't fry, drowning worms and killing time. Nothing too ambitious. She ain't even thinking about what's really going on right now. But I guarantee this memory's a big one. And she thinks we're just fishing. You see, when your child is older, who do you want them to come to to talk about alcohol or peer pressure, boys or girls, a friend who is as inexperienced as them? Or do you want them to come to you? You see, 
Quality time happens because you have put in quantity time. And I want us to remember that God has always been and always will be. God says that I am the great I am, which means that he is past, present, and future. Our time parameters are of no boundary for God. And so perhaps God established time as a platform so he could communicate something so complex, something so important that it must be presented strategically over time. Why why did God not simply send Jesus as soon as Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? Why? The sin issue could have been resolved right then and there. Jesus could have come, given his life, and then mankind could have been saved from the death of sin. But instead, God waited. He used time. You see, Abraham was given a son and a promise. He waited a long time for that promise. Joseph was made to sit in prison a long time in prison. Moses was sent to deliver a nation from bondage. God let a nation wander in the wilderness for 40 years for a long time. God sent judges to rule his people. And then later, a kingdom ruled by kings, some faithful, some disobedient. Later, a people turned their backs on their one true love. A nation was sent into exile. A redeemer was sent to redeem that nation, but also all people. Why? So God could help us understand something with time that we could never understand with a moment. Is that not the true story of the Bible? God's love over time. That God is faithful today, yesterday, and tomorrow. That God isn't faithful just in a moment. But that God always loves us, always has, and always will. And the way that you communicate that is over time, not just in a moment. Now if we turn to the New Testament, in Luke chapter 5, I'll give you a moment to turn there. Luke chapter 5, we'll start reading in verse 17. Luke chapter 5, verse 17, this is going to be the story of where Jesus heals a a paralytic man and forgives him. Uh, The point that I want to make here, uh, we're going to pivot from from talking about uh, how time is used to communicate our love to our children... Uh, But a second point that I would like to encourage parents is to be interruptible and look for teachable moments. In Luke chapter 5, we'll read verses 17 through 26. Like I said just a second ago, this is where Jesus forgives and heals a, a paralyzed man. The text says, one day Jesus was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. 
They'd come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked them, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. What a lousy time to be interrupted. I mean, Jesus is in this house He's preaching, he's giving a sermon. We don't know what point he was trying to make, if he was using some kind of parable or not, or if he was trying to summarize it up. Okay? But Jesus is, is preaching and he's teaching, and then all of a sudden, the roof starts to cave in. You see, what most of us would view as an interruption, as an inconvenience to something that we are doing, Christ viewed as a unique opportunity. Christ saw the need, recognized the faith of these men, and it was clear that that was more important than whatever he was talking about. He immediately saw this as a teachable moment, and he took advantage of it. However, this is only one of the times in Jesus' ministry where he was interrupted. Another instance is when Jesus is on his way to ascend, attend a sick girl, the daughter of the synagogue ruler Jairus, when he is interrupted by a woman afflicted with a long-term bleeding illness. We read about this in Mark chapter 5, if you'd like to turn there with me. Mark chapter 5, verses 22 through 36. Mark chapter 5, 22 through 36. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to a bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. 
When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I only touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see, the people crowded against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched you? But Jesus kept looking around to see the woman who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. And then if we continue on in the story, Jesus goes to the house of this young girl And he brings her back to life. And so two miracles are performed in this instance on this same day right here. You see, one of the remarkable things about Jesus of Nazareth is the abundant evidence that his life was shaped by spiritual disciplines. From childhood on, Jesus' life was built around weekly observing the Sabbath and annually taking a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem to partake in the Passover feast. The Gospels report that regularly he would rise before dawn, before the sun came up, to pray. Jesus had to have his alone time with God. Before his public ministry... Began, he even spent 40 days in the wilderness alone, fasting and praying about what his father had in store for him. The scriptures state that Jesus kept the law in its entirety and never stumbled, even once. Yet the same gospels that report this rhythm of spiritual disciplines. In Jesus' life, also reveal a remarkable ability to improvise and change plans at the spur of the moment. Jesus would spot a tax collector in a tree and say, I'm going to come to your house and share a meal with you, even though everyone else thinks that you might be wicked or undeserving. Of me. Jesus took time to do that. He would stop and listen to a blind beggar calling from the side of the road to meet his need. Jesus would allow a perfume and tears laced interruption by a woman of ill repute, bathe his feet in her tears during a formal dinner at the house of a very respected leader 
within the Jewish community. Jesus took time and was interrupted by that woman, but he saw her need and he met it. But I want you to notice that every time an interruption occurs, it is to the benefit, the interests of someone else, not Jesus. Over and over in the Gospels, Jesus interrupts his agenda, whatever he might be doing, for those who have nothing to offer him, but need everything that he can provide. And now I would like to briefly pivot and address the congregation as a whole, even those of you who may not have children or might even be empty nesters. The Native American crazy horse was born to parents from two tribes of the Lakota division of the Sioux Nation. It's interesting to note that Crazy Horse was born about the same time as his would-be enemy, George Custer. Crazy Horse is known for defeating George Custer and the Union troops at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Crazy Horse was an unusual Indian. His hair was not dark and straight, but light and curly. In fact, his original name was Curly. His father was also named Crazy Horse. Sometimes when a Sioux boy reached an age of maturity and improved himself worthy and responsible and accountable, his father gave that young man his own name and took a new name for himself. When Crazy Horse was a baby, he nursed at the breast of every woman in the tribe. Tribal women shared the nursing of babies, some continuing to lactate for many years and even nursing children for several years. The Sioux raised their children in such a culture. Every Sioux warrior called every woman in the tribe mother. And every older warrior he called grandfather. The point here is that tribal cohesion was established and everyone in the tribe took a responsibility to help raise a child within the Sioux culture. The entire tribe lived and sometimes died as a family. I think there's something here to learn from the Lakota. While we do not physically nourish those outside of our immediate family, we still need to provide spiritual nourishment. I am grateful for men like James Stewart, who is referred to as Birdman uh, by my children. I can tell you the story of that later, perhaps. Um, for, For the mentoring, he provides a young father like myself. In the afternoon when several members play dominoes, it's Cliff McWhorter who taught my son to, Elliot, why don't you take a snack for the road? Now thanks to Cliff, Elliot always says, 
I need one snack now and two for the road. Anytime we load up in the van. Thanks, Cliff. I would like to commend ladies such as Janice Bunt, Paula Hale, Betty DeLott, Kay Cherry, Mitzi Horton, for constantly volunteering to teach our children and being involved in the life of children from this generation but also in generations past. I'm reminded of a woman from when I grew up going to church in Paris, Texas at the Lamar Avenue Church of Christ. A woman named Naomi Bassett who taught third grade Sunday school. I don't know how old Miss Bassett is now. I was very immature when I was in the third grade. And I don't want to suspect how old she was then. But she looked every bit of 75 and that was 20 years ago. So, this woman for the longest time was still involved in the lives of children. Now, while parents should be the primary agents for teaching their children the truths of the Bible, and parents should not shirk that responsibility and think that my child will learn everything that he or she needs to know from Sunday school, it's also important that children have spiritual mentors outside their own immediate family. Still the majority of children's within the excuse me, still the majority of teachers within the children's ministry still have children living at home. Some teachers teach 6 or even 9 months of the year, which sometimes prevents them from attending an adult Bible class on their own for their own spiritual nourishment. I would challenge those of you who may not have taught children's Bible classes in a very long time or perhaps even ever to fill the gap and to feed these children the Word of God. You see, there comes a time in every mature Christian's walk that it is more important to feed than to be fed. At some point, we must realize it is not about me. Furthermore, there are young families in this church that are in need of mentors. You may not have children in the home, but that doesn't prevent you from encouraging young parents as they raise their children or praying for those who have children in the home. I will confess that I do not have all the answers to parenting. Just look at my children. But any advice that some of you might have, I would welcome it with open ears. The last scripture that I would like to read, I'm sure all of you are very familiar with it, is in Proverbs 22.6. Solomon writes, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from his teachings. And so to parents, you are charged by God, by tasked by God to train your children, regardless of what might happen later in the future. And generally speaking, well-trained kids 
become well-principled adults. So train well. To quote a man that some of you may know, a man named David E. Ward, who directed Camp Deer Run for a number of years, David Ward always told me, be mindful of your example. Little eyes are always watching. So, in closing, I would like for us to all sing a song together. We'll actually sing this song through twice. This song is written as a prayer. The words should be up here on the, on the screen. Hopefully some of you know it. It is a song that we sing often at Camp Deer Run. And this song should be our prayer for those with children or those even without children, that our lives might be an example of Jesus Christ, that someone who is following us would see Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, come, follow me as I follow Christ. So, let us all sing this song, Find Us Faithful, through twice, and then I will close us in a prayer. Oh, may 